0: Section Seven, Chapter Seventeen to Nineteen of Sintram and His Companions. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit librivox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. Sintram and His Companions by Friedrich de Motte Fouquet, translated by F. E. Burnett. Chapter Seventeen. "'See, my noble lord,' said Sintram the next morning, when Fulco had expressed his wish of going out with him, "'these skates of ours give such wings to our course that we go down the mountainside swiftly as the wind, and even in going up again we are too quick for any one to be able to pursue us, and on the plains no horse can keep up with us. And yet they can only be worn with safety by those who are well practised. It seems as though some strange spirit dwelt in them, which is fearfully dangerous to any that I have not learned the management of them in their childhood. Folko answered somewhat proudly, "'Do you suppose that this is the first time that I have been amongst your mountains? Years ago I have joined in this sport, and, thank heaven, there is no nightly exercise which does not speedily become familiar to me.' Sintrim did not venture to make any further objections, and still less did old Bjorn. They both felt relieved when they saw with what skill and ease Folko buckled the skates on his feet, "'without suffering anyone to assist him. "'This day they hunted up the mountain "'in pursuit of a fierce bear "'which had often before escaped from them. "'Before long it was necessary "'that they should separate, "'and Sintram offered himself as companion to Folko, "'who, touched by the humble manner of the youth "'and his devotion to him, "'forgot all that had latterly seemed mysterious "'in the pale altered being before him, "'and agreed heartily. "'As now they continued to climb "'higher and higher up the mountain,' and saw from many a giddy height, the rocks and crags below them, looking like a vast expanse of sea suddenly turned into ice whilst tossed by a violent tempest, the noble Montfaucon drew his breath more freely. He poured forth war-songs and love-songs in the clear mountain air, and the startled echoes repeated from rock to rock the lays of his Frankish home. He sprang lightly from one precipice to another, using strongly and safely his staff for support, and turning now to the right, now to the left, as the fancy seized him, so that Centrum was faint to exchange his former anxiety for a wondering admiration, and the hunters, whose eyes had never been taken off the baron, burst forth with loud applause, proclaiming far and wide, fresh glory of their guest. The good fortune which usually accompanied Folko's deeds of arms seemed still unwilling to leave him. After a short search, he and Sintram found distinct traces of the savage animal, and with beating hearts they followed the track so swiftly that even a winged enemy would have been unable to escape from them. But the creature whom they sought did not attempt a flight. He lay sulkily in a cavern near the top of a steep precipitous rock, infuriated by the shouts of the hunters, and only waiting in his lazy fury for someone to be bold enough to climb up to his retreat, that he might tear him to pieces. Folko and Sintram had now reached the foot of this rock, the rest of the hunters being dispersed over the far-extending plain. The trek led the two companions up the rock, and they set about climbing on the opposite sides of it, that they might be the more sure of not missing their prey. Folko reached the lonely topmost point first, and cast his eyes around. A Wide, boundless tract of country, covered with untrodden snow, was spread before him, melting in the distance into the lowering clouds of the gloomy evening sky— he almost thought that he must have missed the traces of the fearful beast. When close beside him from a cleft in the rock issued a long growl, and a huge black bear appeared from the snow, standing on its hind legs, and with glaring eyes it advanced towards the baron. Sintrim, the while, was struggling in vain to make his way up the rock against the masses of snow, continually slipping down. Joyful at a combat so long untried as almost to be new, Folco of Montfaucon, leveled his hunting spear, and awaited the attack of the wild beast. He suffered it to approach so near that its fearful claws were almost upon him. Then he made a thrust, and the spearhead was buried deep in the bear's breast. But the furious beast, still pressed on with a fierce growl, kept up on its hind legs by the cross-iron of the spear, and the knight was forced to plant his feet deep in the earth to resist the savage assault— and ever close before him the grim and bloody face of the bear, and close in his ear its deep, savage growl, wrung forth partly by the agony of death, partly by thirst for blood. At length the bear's resistance grew weaker, and the dark blood streamed freely upon the snow. He tottered, and one powerful thrust hurled him backwards over the edge of the precipice. At the same instant Sintram stood by the Baron of Montfaucon. Folco said, drawing a deep breath, "'But I've not yet the prize in my hands, and have it I must, since fortune has given me a claim to it. Look, one of my skates seems to be out of order. Think'st thou, Sintram, that it holds enough to slide down to the foot of the precipice?' "'Let me go instead,' said Sintram. "'I'll bring you the head and the claws of the bear.' "'A true knight,' replied Fulco with some displeasure, "'never does a knightly deed by halves. What I ask is whether my skate will still hold.' As Sintram bent down to look, and was on the point of saying, No, he suddenly heard a voice close to him, saying, Why, yes, to be sure, there is no doubt about it. Fulco thought that Sintrim had spoken, and slid down with the swiftness of an arrow, whilst his companion looked up in great surprise. The hated form of the little master met his eyes. As he was going to address him with angry words, he heard the sound of the baron's fearful fall, and he stood still in silent horror. There was a breathless silence also in the abyss below. Now, why dost thou delay? said the little master, after a pause. He's dashed to pieces. Go back to the castle, and take the fair Helen to thyself. Sintram shuddered. Then his hateful companion began to praise Gabriella's charms in so glowing, deceiving words that the heart of the youth swelled with emotions he had never before known. He only thought of him who was now lying at the foot of the rock as of an obstacle removed between him and heaven. He turned towards the castle. But a cry was heard below. "'Help! Help, my comrade! I am yet alive, but I am sorely wounded!' Sintram's will was changed, and he called to the baron, "'I am coming!' But the little master said, "'Nothing can be done to help Duke Menelaus, and the fair Helen knows it already. She is only waiting for Knight Paris to comfort her.' And with detestable craft he wove in that tale with what was actually happening— Bringing in the most highly wrought praises of the lovely Gabrielle, and, alas, the dazzled youth yielded to him and fled. Again he heard far off the baron's voice calling to him, Knight Sintram, Knight Sintram, thou on whom I bestowed the holy order, haste to me and help me. The she-bear and her whelps will be upon me, and I cannot use my right arm. Knight Sintram, Knight Sintram, haste to help me. His cries were overpowered by the furious speed with which the two were carried along on their skates, and by the evil words of the little master, who was mocking at the late proud bearing of Duke Menelaus towards the poor Syndrome. At last he shouted, "'Good luck to you, she-bear! Good luck to your whelps! There is a glorious meal for you! Now you will feed upon the fear of heathendom, him at whose name the Moorish brides weep, the mighty Baron of Montfaucon!' Never again, O oh, dainty knight, will you shout at the head of your troops, Mangeur Saint-Denis! But scarce had this holy name passed the lips of the little master than he set up a howl of anguish, writhing himself with horrible contortions and wringing his hands, and ended by disappearing in a storm of snow which then arose. Sintram planted his staff firmly in the ground and stopped. How strangely did the wide expanse of snow, the distant mountains rising above it, and the dark green fir woods. How strangely did they all look at him, in cold, reproachful silence! He felt as if he must sink under the weight of his sorrow and his guilt. The bell of a distant hermitage came floating sadly over the plain. With a burst of tears he exclaimed, as the darkness grew thicker round him, "'My mother! My mother! I had once a beloved, tender mother, and she said I was a good child!' A ray of comfort came to him as if brought on an angel's wing. Perhaps Montfaucon was not yet dead!' and he flew like lightning along the path, back to the steep rock. When he got to the fearful place, he stooped and looked anxiously down the precipice. The moon, just risen in full majesty, helped him. The knight of Montfaucon, pale and bleeding, was half-kneeling against the rock. His right arm, crushed in his fall, hung powerless at his side. It was plain that he could not draw his good sword out of the scabbard, But nevertheless he was keeping the bear and her young ones at bay by his bold, threatening looks, so that they only crept round him, growling angrily, every moment ready for a fierce attack, but as often driven back affrighted at the majestic air by which he conquered, even when defenceless. Oh, what a hero would there have perished, groaned Sintram, and through whose guilt? In an instant his spear flew with so true an aim that the bear fell weltering in her blood. The young ones ran away, howling. The baron looked up with surprise. His countenance beamed as the light of the moon fell upon